Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This most recent term of the United States Supreme Court was one for the history books. Not only because the justices traded in their marble columns for a conference call line, hearing oral arguments for the very first time in this way and in a way that all of us, the public, were able to listen in live, but also because the justices weighed in on such a wide range of issues. And they weighed in on a lot of issues important to the ERLC's work in Washington. They weighed in on issues like religious liberty and civil rights law, as well as abortion jurisprudence and immigration rules. The ERLC filed amicus briefs in a number of these cases, and our brief was even cited in the opinion in the Guadalupe case by Justice Alito. This case was a really important religious liberty victory. This was a busy summer for the ERLC's engagement at the court, and so I was glad to be joined by Dr. Russell Moore to talk about all that happened and what it means moving forward. Dr. Moore and I had this conversation as part of a Friday Forum event with the Capitol Hill Ministry faith and law. Now, first, before we get to that audio, let me tell you a little bit more about our friends at Faith and Law. Faith and Law is a community of congressional staffers and members of Congress that meet regularly to think deeply about how our Christian faith informs and impacts our calling to the public square. Their mission is to encourage and equip Christian policymakers to more fully understand the biblical worldview and its implication in their calling to the public square. We here at ERLC are big fans of the Ministry of Faith and Law, and I would love for you to go to their website, faithandlaw.org. That's faith, A-N-D, law.org, to learn more, see how you can connect with them and support them in their work, gathering uh, speakers like Dr. Moore for their Friday forums, as well as for breakfast with members of Congress and their film discussions and reading groups that they do with Capitol Hill staffers and interns all throughout the year. We at the ERLC are big fans of Faith and Law, and we were really excited to be able to partner with them to have this conversation on all that happened at this year's Supreme Court. Dr. Moore, before we get into the specific cases and the issues, I'd I'd like to start by asking you uh, a cultural question. Uh, This year, our ERLC team engaged directly through our amicus brief practice in five different cases. Uh, But we were also interested in the outcomes of even more than that. And for a ministry like ours, that is that is rare. We we normally aren't directly engaged in five cases. So I was curious, what, what do you make of how often uh, the Supreme Court in recent years is, is being asked to weigh into so many different culture war debates? Well, I don't think it's something that ought to be really that surprising to us because we live in such a fast uh, changing uh, sort of society with the advent of technology and some of the cultural uh, movements that are taking place. I mean, you just think about any given week for any one of us right now. And if you even think about what took place three days ago, 
it seems as though it, it took place three years ago. Uh, and, and that's certainly the case across American culture. And so there are, uh, there are decisions that are having to be made because there are disputes between people that maybe wouldn't have taken place in previous generations or even have made sense to people in previous uh, generations. One uh, helpful thing to do is to imagine going into a time machine and going back and uh, telling people 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago about what disputes are before the Supreme Court. And most of the time, it would be difficult for them to understand, if not completely nonsensical. I mean, and, and that would be the case. Should, should the government force nuns to pay for birth control? Would have made no sense to people 15 years ago. It would have sounded like a, a scary, slippery slope uh, concept, much less the, the sorts of questions and debates that we have over gender and, and sexuality and so forth. But on the other hand, there's always a tendency to want to see our era as completely different from uh, every other era in a way that can be head spinning. And that's just not true. Uh, we always have the same sorts of uh, cultural tensions and pressures. They just manifest themselves in, in different ways. So I, I think there can be a tendency for Christians to think either, oh no, uh, the fact that we're having these debates means that everything is decaying all around us, or let's just get this issue settled and then we will be over these cultural debates. And that's just not, that's just not the case between Eden and the New Jerusalem. So let's jump into the cases. And I'd like to start with the religious liberty cases because there were quite a few. Uh, and this summer's roller coaster began with a decision in Bostock, which was unexpected to most court watchers to see Bostock be the first one out of the gate. And it really was a bit of a shockwave. So I want to ask you, um, you know, Bostock came out. So I want to ask what what you think that case means. Uh, but then given the other religious liberty cases that came after it, including Espinoza and Our Lady of Guadalupe, what's your sense of what this court's term is going to mean for religious liberty moving forward? Well, I don't know. And, and I think that, that anyone that can definitively say this is what this is going to look like um, probably doesn't know uh, where this is going to go because there are all sorts of uh, hanging threads uh, left here after these decisions that we, we simply don't know where they're going to move. And, and frankly, if we had had Bostock only without also having the Our Lady of Guadalupe case coming uh, right on the heels of it, it would have been even more confusing as to where things are going to be headed in terms of institutions and um, uh, other faith-based uh, sorts of entities. So I don't know exactly where all of this is headed because I think it, it raises a lot of questions that it's not answering. It. So I think Bostock is going to be different than, say, Obergefell. Obergefell raised some issues, but uh, Obergefell also, at least at the level of the courts and at the level short term of the culture, settled a lot of issues. So I think that, in other words, after that, very few people thought, okay, we're still going to be arguing about policy right now as to whether or not, uh, as to what marriage definition would be. That, that was, uh, most people said the courts have decided that whether rightly or wrongly, that's what they uh, concluded. That's not really the case with Bostock because it, it's dealing with one very specific aspect here of application. 
And we can speculate about how that's going to be applied, but I don't think we really know. I do know that there was a lot of confusion that came out of Bostock, and and uh, partly because one of the things that I was immediately hearing was from pastors saying, well, does this apply to local churches uh, in, in terms of saying what their, their hiring can be in terms of pastors and, and other staff members? And of course, not, even if... Uh, even if Our Lady of Guadalupe had not been handed down, Hosanna Tabor already addressed that issue. And I would argue the First Amendment addressed it a long time ago. But many people assume, well, if that's not the case, then that means that that's not really going to have any implication for us. And that's a wrong assumption as well. Well, so let me ask you, the morning that Bostock was decided, you just touched on it, there was a lot of confusion. And one of the things I really love about working at the ERLC is is being able to help people think well. Sometimes it looks like pushing people to to be a little bit more concerned about an issue that maybe is invisible to them. Other times it it looks like uh, toning toning the temperature of of the discussion down a little bit. Uh, so I, as I remember it, when Bostock was decided, as our team was reviewing the opinion uh, and and as well the dissents and, and trying to make sense of it and get our bearings, uh, you were busy writing. And I think it was within an hour that we had an article published at our site that you wrote called After the Bostock Supreme Court Decision, which I would highly encourage viewers of today's event to go, to go read it. It's brief, but it's really helpful. So, Dr. Moore, what was on your mind when you were writing that this morning specifically for Christians, church leaders, Christians like like those in our audience today, policymakers working on Capitol Hill, what were you trying to communicate to them with that? Well, I think there's a tendency whenever there's a Supreme Court decision that has to do with some important cultural question to either uh, ignore it and to to act as though it's not going to have continuing implications or to make this into an apocalyptic uh, sort of uh, question. I mean, so if, if you think about, for instance, in terms of Obergefell, uh, that, that decision, I found myself doing two completely different things on the run-up to Obergefell and on the, the path from Obergefell. So on the run-up to Obergefell, most of what I found myself doing was saying to people, this is going to be an issue that is going to be facing you. So you can't assume because you're in Arkansas or Oklahoma or somewhere that you're not going to have to be dealing with same-sex marriage. You can just see in terms of where this is going, not just in the courts, but also in the culture, that this was going to be an issue in Oklahoma and Arkansas and uh, rural Maine and, and places like that. And so you, you couldn't be in an ecosystem uh, cut off from that. And so a lot of the arguments that would be made uh, would be, well, this is, this is something that's only been imposed by some courts. It's never been affirmed by uh, any legislatures or popular vote until it was. But you could start saying, but yeah, but look, but look at just demographically and culturally where this is, is headed. So I was having to spend a lot of time saying, this is, this is coming. Uh, and then from that, though, to say, this isn't the end of the world. Uh, Christianity has always existed as a, a counterculture rea countercultural reality, and particularly on issues of uh, sexuality and, and family structure. Christianity emerged in a world like that. And so as much as we can say, can you believe 
uh, the sorts of debates and questions that we're having, well, read the New Testament and you see debates and questions about temple prostitution, about, uh, I mean, there's, there's uh, explicit, um, explicit language in, uh, in Galatians chapter five. We think of the, the fruit of the spirit, works of the flesh, talking about orgies. Uh, most people don't think that that's something that you really have to cover in your uh, new Christians uh, orientation meeting. Hey, orgies are bad. Right. Well, why right. do you have to say that in a first century context? Because you're living in uh, a, a very sexually libertine world. Uh, so that's not a new uh, phenomenon. And so I think there can be a tendency sometimes when there is a quote unquote win to assume this is now all behind us or when there is a quote unquote loss to think everything is lost. And that's just not the way that history works in a, in a Christian understanding of history. In a Christian understanding of history, the grace of God is always there. The power of the gospel is always there and fallenness is, is always there, whether you can see it or, or can't see it. And so we always are going to have to be asking ourselves, what are the challenges of this moment? But what we don't ask ourselves is, do we have challenges at this moment? Right. So it's, it's the same sort of question that you have, for instance, on the life issue. Um, there, there are some times where uh, people will look at the life issue and say, well, look at the, uh, the public opinion polls. We're winning because more people are identifying themselves as pro-life uh, than were before. Or uh, look, at, look at the pro-life issue. We're losing. Everything is lost because uh, nothing has been done in terms of policy. Well, neither of those realities are true. Uh, we're, we're living in a time where there's a loss in the sense that we have to even say things that shouldn't have to be said, that a human life is valuable regardless of stage of development and regardless of vulnerability and regardless of location. But we also live in a time where the very fact that there is a vibrant witness to human dignity, including a Christian witness to human dignity, uh, is itself a sign of God's presence and of God's grace. So there's almost always in these moments a, when someone calls and asks me really about any development, culturally, legally, morally, uh, anything else, one of the first things that I'm going to be doing is saying to myself, am I talking to somebody who is tempted toward being a utopian? Or am I talking to someone who is uh, tempted to be apocalyptic uh, in, in the wrong sense of apocalyptic, not, not in the Rev book of Revelation sense? And, <laughs> right. and then that's going, to, that's going to help me to know which direction I'm going to want to point this person to consider uh, what's going right. on. It's the same reality. But you have to ask, where's the starting point the person's coming right. from? So with uh, with the Bostock case, we got a six to three opinion, which really changed the implications uh, of uh, sex discrimination um, to also cover sexual orientation, gender identity uh, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But then some of the other religious liberty cases that came after that, Espinoza v. Montana, which was a tighter decision, five to four. Uh, where religious liberty advocates such as us were, were glad to see the court uh, strike down discrimination against families in religious schools. 
and then we we had a, an even an even um, more significant victory just in terms of vote count uh, in a seven to two decision in July in Our Lady Guadalupe School uh, versus uh, Morsi Beru. And I think the Guadalupe case is a good is a good example of of something that we talk about often at the ERLC, which is religious freedom is good for all Americans. Um, so, so Dr. Moore, I want to ask you, particularly for the Guadalupe case, why is the freedom of a religious school's employment policies good also for non-religious Americans? Why was that seven to two decision also good for people who aren't involved in a religious school context? Well, uh, let me separate out those two cases because I think they each uh, they each hit at different important aspects. I think what some people assume when they look at the Espinoza case is that, well, what this means is government funding of uh, religions and religious entities. I am completely opposed uh, to government funding of uh, religious uh, institutions and, and religious uh, mission. Uh, that's one of the things that the Baptist movement in England and in the United States uh, came about in order to protest is the idea of taxing people for spiritual ends and, uh, and, and acting as though the church needs uh, the, the endorsement or the help of the government in order to, to go forward. Uh, that, that's not what the case was about. And nor was the case uh, saying that a state has to fund private schools. Uh, the, the case explicitly said, a government can say, uh, we're not going to provide scholarships for anybody outside of public schools. That's well within a, a state government's right to do. The difference is, if they then say, we're going to give scholarships to children and to their parents to go to schools, and they're, they're not making a distinction between public and private, they can't then say, except for those schools that are religious. That was an important. Uh, that was an important move. I, I actually um, would have liked it to have gone a little bit further uh, in terms of explicitly saying that some of these Blaine amendments, even though the Blaine amendments, a lot of a lot of the time, I'm actually completely in agreement with where the the end result is, but not the way that you get there. Uh, I think it's very harmful uh, to the way that we see uh, religious expression and religious. Uh, religious freedom. When it comes to the Our Lady of Guadalupe case, I think the, the issue is what was important in that case is the recognition that um, defining minister in a way that applies to every aspect of religious, uh, of religious life and expression is not possible without establishing a form of religion. And so to then, uh, to then come up, and you can see this often with uh, sometimes, for instance, um, someone will try to come up with a definition of of minister and say, "Well, it it has to be someone who is who is uh, able to dispense sacraments." Well, that certainly applies to Catholic and Anglican and and several other uh, sorts of clergy. Doesn't apply to low church Protestant or to Jewish rabbis or uh, or to Unitarians or Quakers or, or other groups. So the court the court recognized that and also to recognize that religious entities that have a religious mission have to be able to define the boundaries of what those religions are and the people who are charged with, with teaching that. Now that's not just sort of a special carve out for religious people because one of the things that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison 
both recognized at the very beginning, neither of them were winning awards for Sunday school attendance. Uh, Thomas Jefferson literally cut the Bible apart uh, in order to take uh, the supernatural elements uh, out of there. I would, I would not allow Thomas Jefferson to lead in silent prayer uh, <laughs> at a, a family devotion at my house, no matter what. But he recognized that religious liberty was in his interest and in everyone's interest and even though he actually thought or said at one point he really expected all of this kind of orthodox religious fervor to go away and everybody would just be Unitarians uh, later on, he still thought that religious liberty was, uh, was not just about the freedom of religious people. It's about the limitation of the power of the state. And so this, this has everything to do even with people who will never walk into a synagogue or a church or a mosque uh, in terms of what's the, what's the proper role of government. And a, a government that can come in and manage the inner regions of the soul is a government that can do anything. And so this actually was a, a good ruling in the same way that there are going to be all sorts of court rulings uh, that... Uh, that, that I would say, I don't necessarily agree with what people are wanting to do, but I definitely agree with the sort of country that would say, we're not going to force you to do otherwise. Uh, I would, don't have the same beliefs that the Little Sisters of the Poor have uh, about a whole a variety of issues, but uh, saying to the Little Sisters of the Poor, in order to carry out your mission, you have to have the same view of contraception as the Episcopal Church USA, well, that is my problem. Uh, right. Even if even if I don't agree with them, because it means that I've given the power of the government to come in and establish uh, that sort of uh, religious boundary in order for people to be able to freely serve. Right, and and just as a legal matter, there was a lot of commentary uh, the day that the Little Sisters case was decided again that it's just generally a bad idea to sue nuns. Um, that's, that's just generally not a good idea. Uh, Dr. Moore, let's, let's move on now to talk about the, the, uh, the terms most, most significant case for the pro-life movement, and that's June Medical Services v. Rousseau. This was a disappointment. Uh, Louisiana was, uh, was before the court, um, with their law that didn't even necessarily deal with abortion specifically, but rather with protecting women, uh, in healthcare. And, uh, this was a case where Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion. It was a it was a five to four decision against Louisiana, and honestly, the the ruling was a surprising uh, was a surprising one to me. But what what do you think happened? Was it was it surprising to you? I, I it, you know I'm not I'm not necessarily asking what do you think was on Chief Justice Roberts' mind. I, I don't know that anybody could do that. But culturally, for the pro life movement, what do you think happened with this case? Well, just as I uh, disagreed with Justice Gorsuch on Bostock, and I disagree with Chief Justice Roberts on uh, on this case, I have no interest in uh, blasting uh, either of them uh, in, in terms of uh, th there are many people who would want to say these are uh, complete sellouts. They've disappointed us because they went in a ruling uh, different than what we would want, and therefore we're we're giving up on them and moving on. That is that is not my viewpoint at all. Uh, I, I take both men at their word that they're they're looking at the law and trying to make sense of of the law. 
And I wasn't surprised by this case, but only because I'd been in conversation with um, several people who have been watching this process all along and who have always, almost always been right to the point that I've almost accused one of them of being involved in some sort of uh, occultism that would be prohibited by the book of Leviticus for me to participate in because he seems to have some sort of psychic uh, divining of how all of these things are going to come out. And what he said was, uh, he said, here's what I expect will happen. He said, the, the best case scenario is they have a narrow ruling where they affirm the, the right of, of this small, relatively small regulation in the area of abortion. The worst case scenario is they strike it down and as they're doing so, they're, they reaffirm Casey, uh, which would have been explicitly reaffirmed Casey. He said, but what I think will happen is that they will uh, attempt to uphold precedent in such a way that they knock, they, they rule against us on this, but the, the conversation is still open uh, for another day. And I think that's exactly what, what happened. So uh, what I would have liked to have seen is for the court to say, this is not an outrageous request. I mean, if, if you can't uh, ask for basic uh, health provisions uh, when it comes to uh, regulating an industry, then, then that industry, the, the, you essentially end up with a sort of laissez-faire reality of an industry that the robber barons would have loved to have. Uh, for the railroads or the or the oil industry, but is not in the public interest. So I, I think that's I think that's where uh, where this uh, ended up, and I think it it's going to have to be uh, taken up again uh, another day, where it's not a case that has been so recently uh, mm. decided by the court. So I, I want to ask you there because that that's exactly the situation. I mean, the, the robber barons uh, analogy. Yeah. That's exactly the situation that the abortion. Uh, industry has carved out for themselves right now. Uh, this law in Louisiana, like m- much like the, the the Texas law before it that was challenged in Whole Women's Health, which was the precedent they were upholding, uh, it was simply trying to hold abortion clinics to the same medical standards as any other ambulatory surgical center. So right. what what can we in the pro-life movement do to to disrupt that unique carve out that the abortion lobby has uh, has successfully uh, made for themselves how do we disrupt that well i think i think one of the ways is to uh, continue to bring cases uh before the judiciary that's going to make the point uh and so uh, the, the way that you the way that you lose this is to say because we've lost we're simply going to give up and assume that this means that there's just a, a permanent uh, state of, of uh, lack of regulation for the abortion industry. That's one of the ways is you don't give up. The other way, though, is that you question that cultural assumption that says that uh, abortion is uh, half the time just like any other kind of uh, health care and therefore ought to be legal and protected until you start talking about holding it to the same standards as other healthcare, and then it's not healthcare at all. It's uh, something else. And so you have to challenge that at the, at the cultural level as well. Um, because I think what's, what's happening with the abortion industry, as in a lot of other violent uh, sorts of uh, practices, 
is that there's a, a tendency for people to want to avoid thinking about what is happening there. And so it becomes easier for people in their lives uh, to, to say, I'm for women's health care and I'm for reproductive uh, rights without having to think about what does that mean uh, as it applies to this case. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why you end up with the sort of uh, weird twilight existence that we see for the abortion industry. Justice Thomas's dissent was uh, quite excellent for those of us who believe abortion to be a grave moral issue. He said, quote, Roe is grievously wrong for many reasons, but the most fundamental is that its core holding that the Constitution protects a woman's right to abort her unborn child finds no support in the text of the 14th Amendment. Dr. Moore, are you optimistic or, or pessimistic about the future of pro-life cases uh, in, the, in the judiciary? Well, as I, as I said earlier, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm Augustinian uh, when it comes to this, um, meaning that um, I think the very fact that there still is this debate in an American context is extraordinary uh, in, in terms of the view of inevitable, quote unquote, progress that some people would have. And I, I was talking to someone in another country yesterday who said, um, who said, it's just really remarkable to me that you all still have an abortion debate uh, in the United States when talking about his own country, he said, we do not. It's not because they've moved to a recognition of, of uh, human dignity of unborn children. It's simply because abortion has been something they have made peace with in the sense that they just accept it as a part of life and have moved on. So the very fact that this is still uh, an issue of debate is a sign of hope for me. And then when you, you look at that at the, at the ground level and you see what's taking place uh, all around the country in terms of ministry uh, to women who are in uh, crisis pregnancies, uh, to taking care of uh, vulnerable children, uh, to, to speaking to consciences on these issues, I think there's a great deal of hope. Where I'm not as hopeful is um, not just in terms of the disappointments that we've seen in the courts, but maybe more so in terms of the developments that are happening in terms of technology. Um, so I, I think that we tend to think of the abortion issue primarily in terms of the way that we have known it as uh, clinics uh, that, that are existing. And that's going to be the case for a while to come. But increasingly, uh, abortion is going to be less clinical and more pharmaceutical in ways that are going to be uh, going to be even more difficult. I mean, if you think about uh, how hard it is to maintain even basic common sense regulations of ambulatory healthcare uh, clinics, much more so when you're dealing with uh, the dispensing of pharmaceuticals that uh, accomplish the same violent act, but are much, much harder to regulate. So I'm, I'm both hopeful and sobered uh, by this. Right. Dr. Moore, the last case that I want to ask you about uh, is, is a, a group of cases that the ERLC didn't file an amicus brief in, um, but we were, we were certainly interested in the outcome. And, and that was the, the group of cases dealing with the DACA program. Um, so this, this was a, this was a case that, um, the, the court basically was dealing with administrative law. And so that's 
obviously why ERLC didn't didn't file a brief, didn't necessarily uh, have a, have a uh, you know have a horse in, in that race, but we certainly care about dreamers uh, who would have been greatly affected had had the had the court gone the other way. Do you think there's any chance that this ruling is a wake up call for Congress to act and provide a permanent solution for dreamers? I've, I've long ago uh, given up on wake up calls uh, to Congress as it applies to uh, dreamers. I, I think what has to happen is uh, is not uh, Congress acting, but the American people insisting that uh, Congress act. So there, there's a, a shocking uh, cruelty uh, toward uh, dreamers uh, in this country by a, a tiny minority of people, uh, but that is able to be efficacious. If you, if you talk to most people, and the public polling will show this, focus groups will show this, just walking around and talking to people and saying, uh, what do you think about uh, this situation? There really is not a lot of discord uh, over over this question, uh, unlike the other things that we've talked about, where you right. mentioned culture war sorts of uh, questions, and, and there are heated culture wars that break up. There really isn't on this. Um, I could walk into uh, right down the street, my uh, local coffee shop uh, here in Nashville, or uh, into a coffee shop in New York City, or into a coffee shop in my hometown of Lexi, Mississippi, and throw out the issue of abortion, or throw out the issue of government funding of of uh, scholarships for religious students, and you could spark a debate that you wouldn't, uh, you really wouldn't want to start in a coffee shop. But if you came in and said, you know, "What should we do with children?" who were brought to this country through no fault of their own and who are living in this state of, uh, of constant ambiguity and have been good citizens and have, have given uh, good neighbors and have given, uh, given their lives uh, to this country in all sorts of ways, what should we do? Most people actually have uh, the same out, uh, outcome uh, that's in mind. It's just that there is such an anti-immigrant uh, wave uh, taking place across the country and around the world, that uh, that 80% of the people are terrified of uh, of the 10% who who simply want uh, no action at all that might help someone who's not initially from this country. And so I think it's going to take the American people saying this this sort of treatment of people is is just not it's not just, especially right. because they're actually. Not only do you have very few people who disagree with what ought to be done, there's virtually no one who has a coherent solution on the other end of this. Some people will say, well, send them back. There is no back. These are not not people who came here uh, from El Salvador or Nigeria or wherever. These are people who have been here since they were infants. And um, as the father of two sons who were born in Russia that we adopted when they were a year old uh, 18 years ago this week, uh, I'm trying to imagine those two boys being told, you need to go back to Russia where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, uh, you're completely Americanized to the point that um, these are kids who know exactly what Pop-Tarts taste like but wouldn't uh, even be able to recognize borscht. Uh, that's not sending them back. Uh, that would be sending right. them into 
uh, a, a completely unworkable environment. So the American people right. are going to have to insist on, on justice here. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Once again, if you enjoyed this conversation, I'd encourage you to go check out our friends uh, Faith and Law at faithandlaw.org to learn more about that awesome ministry here on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much to the team at Faith and Law for inviting Dr. Moore and I to be a part of this important conversation about what all happened at the Supreme Court this year. If you enjoy listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening so that you can know as soon as episodes pop up in your feed, they will just drop right in if you subscribe. Uh, And if you'd be so kind, give us a nice rating and a review because that really will help others find our show. And we want as many people around this round table as possible. Thanks so much to our production team. And thanks also to you for joining us today. Resources from this conversation about all of our work and engagement at the Supreme Court this term are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com. And it's all, as always, to equip you and your church.